is Love is a series that we've uh, sort of created out of uh, one of the most well-known uh, verse, uh, verses in all of the Bible. So almost everybody knows John 3.16. It's famous and infamous for multiple reasons. If you've ever watched a football game and you see the field goal going through the uprights, there's uh, generally somebody holding a John 3.16 sign somewhere in that mass of people. And when I was little, I grew up Catholic, and so um, we had a, a sort of faith, but not a real knowledge of Scripture or anything of what that meant. That always intrigued me. Why is somebody, of all the things you could put on a sign, why would you put that on the sign? Well, it turns out, as you dive deeper into faith, you recognize that so much of our faith is, is sort of encapsulated in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. It's familiar to us. It's really well known. And yet, for so many of us, it's not known all that well. It's this paradox of we know it, it's familiar, but we don't know the depth of it. We don't know uh, really how deep does it go and, and what does it actually mean. What, if you pull on each word in the verse, there's some new surprise, a new delight, a new insight. And so what we're going to do is actually spend four weeks centered around that singular verse of John 3.16. This week we'll look at God's initiating love, and that'll prompt us next week to look at God's generous love, which will then showcase in the following week God's sacrificial love, which will result in on Easter Sunday talking about God's saving love. The background on this is uh, to get to John 3.16, you need to know that Jesus is having a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus, a Pharisee. And, and so they're having this conversation, and, and this is what prompts Jesus into this, this sort of short speech that has this climax in John 3.16. Before he even speaks to Nicodemus, he's in Jerusalem. We're going to pick up the story in John 2. And so John 2, uh, verse 23 now, Jesus is getting a lot of attention. He's doing signs and wonders. It says, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, Jesus on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. I'm going to read it again. It says, now, when he was in Jerusalem, Jesus was at the Passover feast. Okay, so at Passover, there's hundreds of thousands of Jews that show up to Jerusalem. And so this is the height of uh, the population. This is the height of every Jew from the around, surrounding area comes to Jerusalem to be part of this. So you could see in a city that was usually 60,000, 80,000, 350,000 people crammed into the city. There, it says, many believed in his name. But then verse 24 said, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. It's funny to me when you think about many believed in his name. I mean, they're watching him do signs and wonders. There's 300,000 people in the city. They believe in his name. They believe in his name. They believe in his name because he's doing these signs and wonders. And you think, that's a lot of people. I'm sure there was a bunch of believers. You get to Acts chapter 1, after the crucifixion of Christ, and the scripture tells us there's 120 that really believe. That there was this big belief, and yet only 120 would have called themselves believers after the crucifixion. Like something was happening. And so what we see in verse 23, Jesus says, it says that many believed in his name, but in verse 24 it says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. And that word entrust is the same word as in verse 23, believe. They're the exact same Greek word. So what, it, what it's actually saying is they believed him, but he didn't believe them. Jesus looks at these people who are believing in his signs and wonders, and, and he doesn't believe them. He sees a superficial belief based in the signs. It's like he knew what was inside of them. So on the outside, while they were saying, yeah, this is great, he knew on the inside there was something broken. 
This reminds me of a house that we tried to buy a couple years ago. Uh, before we bought our last house in San Antonio, we were looking for different houses, and we were kind of in a whole new area. We had lived in a, an inner city uh, neighborhood with uh, 100-year-old homes and high crime rates and all that, and so uh, our four-year-old was going into kindergarten soon, and we needed to get in the school district that was a little better, and, and so we're out in the suburbs, which was pretty new for us. And we were going from house to house, and we found this one house that was in uh, just the perfect neighborhood with great schools. The house backed up to... Um, this wooded kind of forest, and then on the backside of the woods was a cliff that ran into a, a creek that, that was really a trickle, but when it rained, it was this roaring torrent. So it was kind of this interesting lot, but you'd never have to see another house out your back deck. It was just sort of perfect. And we could never have afforded that neighborhood, but somehow we could afford this house. So we went in a little skeptically, and we walked through, and, and, and it's pristine. Everything seems new. The kitchen has been redone. Everything seems nice. It's vacant, so we could move in quickly if we need to. Sort of everything was just sort of lining up for us. This is the house. This is our dream house. I could see myself retiring in this house that we'd never have to go anywhere. There's enough room for the girls. There's space for Steph to teach piano lessons. Everything works. So we're walking around, and I'm just sort of in awe that this is actually going to happen, and we're ready for this. And the, the agent, you can tell the real estate agent's pretty excited because we've been looking for a while, and we finally found the one. And my, my dad was there. They lived in town, and we invited them over to look at it with us because we were so excited about it. And he's in the garage, and he says, hey, everybody, come in here. I should tell you that I don't fear many things in life. But if you really want to upset me, fake snakes hidden in strange areas will get me every time. Snakes, me and snakes don't get along. Snakes and I are not friends. Um, part of the reason, uh, subtly, I've said this before, part of the reason I think we moved 1,400 miles north was because there's fewer snakes and there's no rattlesnakes, uh, as far as I can tell. I have not seen a snake in BG. We saw one on vacation this summer, and it was a little bit spooky. I was like, I, I thought there weren't snakes in Ohio. But anyway, snakes. My dad says, everybody come in here quick. And it's, it's a nice, clean, they go in the garage, it's clean, it's beautiful, it's nice, it's huge. And it has these new aluminum kind of garage doors. And each one, they have like these metal brackets on the inside. Every time the garage door is going to fold, it's got a bracket to kind of keep it on. And inside one of the brackets, about four feet off the ground, is a five-foot-long rat snake. Just nicely, it's stretched out in the garage door. To which I said, well, we can't live here. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm done. I can't do this. This is his house, not my house. I can't do this relax. They say, it's okay. You, you don't have rats. So that's good, right? He's very healthy looking. So somebody grabs a stick or grabs a golf club from their car. I don't remember what the instrument used was, but my father being slightly insane, um, scoops the snake up out of the garage door, um, little tray proceeds to open the garage door and walk out into the neighborhood, and he finds one of these uh, sort of like a flood channel retention pond thing, and he, he kind of hops it over the fence there, and it slithers down into the weeds, and he comes back, and he goes, all better, no snake. I take a deep breath and several prescription medications, and we continue looking at the house. Go to another tour. We take the upstairs in. We're looking at the backyard. We're dreaming about, okay, maybe this would be okay. And, and the whole time we're in the yard, I'm looking like, and that thing has friends and brothers. I don't know what that's about. I don't know if I can do this. But I'm getting over. I'm like, this was like the perfect house. So we go back, and we're, the, the realtor is locking up the, 
the house, you know, as they do, the blinds are getting closed and the locks are getting turned and we're kind of taking our last deep breath and looking around and going, is this the one we're going to make an offer on? And we feel pretty confident in it. My dad goes, you're never going to believe this. In the span of about seven minutes, the snake, which had been taken, I don't know, 150 yards away and dumped in somewhere completely unrelated to the house, has made its way somehow back into the garage and is at the moment slithering up the garage door right back into the exact same bracket on the garage door, and he's all happy again. And I said, we are absolutely never living in this house. That is the snake's house. Tear it down. It's over. We're done. And we left, and we did not buy that house. I have no idea why I told you that story. I know why I told you that story. We looked at the house, and on the outside of the house, we believed in this house. This house was good. That house did not believe in us, right? There was something wrong on the inside of the house that you couldn't see from the outside. You couldn't see from the pictures. You couldn't see from the walkthrough. But once you really got into it, there was something, there was something wrong with the house, and it, was, it belonged to a snake. So this is what, what's happening. The surface shine on anything can't conceal the damage on the inside. Jesus sees through outside shine. Jesus sees through outside belief. Jesus sees through superficial uh, religiosity. Ultimately, Jesus looks at uh, the folks that have believed in him for his signs and wonders, and he knows that they still trust in themselves and their works and their righteousness. What he sees when he looks at them is, is a people who's looking at his miracles as a nice addition to their religion. Jesus didn't come to supplement religion, but supplant it. Jesus didn't come to supplement religion, but to supplant it. What Jesus needs is a way to address this. How does he address this idea that, that he's not here to be an additional part of your religious exercise, but he's here to be something totally wildly different, which is where Nicodemus comes in. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God and that no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's interesting. Nicodemus comes and pays Jesus a compliment. No one can do the things you're doing unless they're coming from God. This is great. You're a teacher. You're a rabbi. He's giving him this great respect. And Jesus doesn't respond with thank you. Jesus says no one can, no one can come to God. No one can inherit the kingdom. No one can see the kingdom unless they're born again. Nicodemus is a little confused in, chapter, in verse 4. He says, how can a man be born then when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus must be shaking a little bit right now, like, I don't know what is happening and what he's talking about, but let's keep going. Jesus then says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Like, calm down. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? To which Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? And he starts to read his heart. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Then verse 14. 
as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, here's snakes again, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I'm going to read that one again. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, Jesus says. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That's a lot. Nicodemus, we need to see, comes with a really sincere approach. He comes by night, which is to be discreet, to be private, not to create attention. And he begins by complimenting Jesus. He calls him a teacher. Jesus responds by saying, you're a teacher of Israel. And Jesus implies he's seeking the kingdom of God, which is sort of a a respect given back. Hey, Nicodemus, thanks for being respectful. I can see that you're seeking the kingdom of God. So what we have here is a respectable man, a respectable teacher who's respecting Christ in his place. And yet Jesus knew what was in the man, that Nicodemus was born and then building a resume of righteousness. He was born and then building a resume of righteousness. And so Jesus says, unless someone is born again, there's no salvation by your first birth. There's no resume you're going to build to get you in. To which Nicodemus says, how can this be? What is the second birth all about? And how can I have it? Which takes us to that verse 14 and 15 we read about Moses and the serpent. Jesus references a familiar passage for this teacher of Israel, this expert in the scripture. Jesus looks at at him, and instead of giving him a straight answer, he points him back to the book of Numbers. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. Let's read it. It says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people, the Israelites, became impatient along the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, they said. There is no food, there is no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And the Lord sent fiery serpents, not flaming serpents, but like coppery, bronzy, reflecting in the sun serpents among the people. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we've spoken against the Lord and against you, so pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Okay, they don't like snakes either. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, a copper serpent, a bronze serpent, and set it on a pole, also called a standard. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on a pole, on this standard, and, and it If the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Why would Jesus, in responding to this man saying, how can I be born again? Why would Jesus say, remember Moses and the snakes that were biting people? It's that. I said this this idea of a pole that that God has told Moses to, to create this pole and then make a bronze snake on the pole. 
the, the pole is also called a standard, which if you're watching like a, a movie set in medieval times where they, they carry the flag into battle, it's one of those crosses. It's, a, it's like a capital T, and they tie the top pieces of the flag to the cross beam, and then the, the other two pieces come down to the middle, and they tie it. And so you see the, you know, the whatever it is, the not very strong guy marching in with that thing while the warriors come behind him. We have a, a picture of the a painting of the, the pole. That's what it would look like, right? So this is uh, the depiction of Moses and the serpent that he created, and it's, it's a capital T. And so what's happening here is this bronze serpent would shine in the desert sun, right? This fiery serpent. So he would place it on the T so that all could see it. And then when they were bitten by a snake, they could look at that. And the effect of the bite would be undone. People were suffering the effect of their sin. They said, they they go to Moses and say, we've sinned against you. What do we do? And the response is, make a serpent, put it up on this standard, put it on the pole, on the capital T, and when people see it, their sin will be undone. The effect will be undone. It's like death has entered into the camp of Israel, and the only way out of it is to put this up on the capital T. The only way to survive was to look at the standard, and in looking to the standard, you lived. As many of you know, Roman crucifixion took place on a capital T. Traditionally, Roman crucifixion, the same that Jesus endured, did not take place on a lowercase t like we're used to seeing depicted uh, in modern times. But the common Roman crucifixion was a capital T that, that the person being crucified would carry the cross beam of their crucifix through town. And then approaching the place where the crucifixions were done, they would have the poles pre-set and the crossbeam would be set on top of the pre-existing poles. They would set them right at road height so that when the person and their feet were drawn up to be crucified, the person's eyes would be at at eye level with those walking by them on the, the busy road. So as to create a deterrent, lest you end up like him, mind yourself. And we don't know whether Jesus was crucified on a capital T or a lowercase t, But culture and history would suggest that it probably looks more like this than it does like that. So Nicodemus says, how do I, how do I enter into this kingdom? How am I, how am I born again? And Jesus says, when the people of Israel sinned, when the people of Israel sinned against God, they needed something else to save them. They needed something on the standard. They needed something to look towards beyond themselves to heal them from the effect of their sin. Christ is foreshadowing the cross. People were suffering the effect of sin. They were bitten and dying. And the only way to survive was to look at the standard. And Jesus is saying, only now this born again means you're not going to be looking at a bronze statue or a creation of man. But he says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. The Son of Man must be lifted up, like the serpent in the days of Moses. The Son of Man must be put on the capital T, on the standard, on the pole, for all to see the Son of Man must be nailed to the tree. And then and only then can you be born again by looking upon that in belief. So what does it mean to be born again, Nicodemus is asking. And Jesus says, when I'm on the cross and you look, and then you believe, that's where it starts. This is God's initiating love. How hard it must have been for Nicodemus to see the reality that Jesus was painting for him. 
put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes. We have the, the beauty of hindsight where we can go, well, duh, Jesus is talking about the cross. It hadn't happened yet. So Nicodemus is sitting there going, so you're telling me you call yourself the Son of Man, you're going to be like the snake in the desert on the, what? Imagine Nicodemus's heart in the day of Christ's crucifixion. When this thing that was told to him, this how I be born again, this, this kind of convoluted like the serpent in the desert and it's going to be on the, what? I don't think I get it. When Nicodemus walks down that road and sees Christ on the cross, he goes, wait a minute. God's initiating love says that before we ever knew we needed it or even what it was, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son for us. God establishes himself in this moment as protagonist in Nicodemus's life, in our life, that God is the one driving the action. In Genesis 1, from nothing he creates, he breathes us into existence. In John 1, the word becomes flesh so that in John 3, in death, we might find life. God is the lead actor in the story that we're living in. God is the initiator of every scene in the play. You want to see where you are in the story? It's in John 3.16, whoever believes, or whosoever believes, depending on which Bible you're carrying. We are whoever. We're whosoever. Which is the widest, most inclusive word possible in the language. Present, future, black, white, rich, poor, belief in Jesus by anyone everywhere is what that word encompasses. John 3.16 establishes God's radical, initiating love, and it reminds us, like Nicodemus, that we ask what we need to do, and God's response is what he will do. And in our case, what he's already done. We can't own salvation until God owns us. We can't grasp salvation until God grasps us. Christianity is different from every other world religion because it isn't about what you do for God. It's what God has already done for you. It's God's preemptive rescue plan. It's his initiating love that starts the story. His preemptive rescue plan is made known. What do we call preemptive rescue in our world? It's called evacuation. Evacuation is just preemptive rescue. We know this thing is coming, and so we're going to go ahead and take care of you now. One of the largest evacuations in the history of the modern world took place on September 11, 2001. Not many people know about this. As planes hit the World Trade Center and the buildings fall, on any given weekday, there's 5 million people on the island of Manhattan. And where the World Trade Center is situated, on the southern half, what you had was a whole lot of people that weren't in those two buildings that needed somewhere to go because if you were there watching on TV, you remember. You remember what the little cryon said on the screen on CNN or wherever you're watching that says America under attack. 500,000 New Yorkers flee from the scene of the World Trade Center towers. And they all run south to the very southern tip of the island known as uh, the Battery. There, they're met by these tugboat captains and ferry boat operators and random fishing people. And over the course of the next nine hours, 500,000 people were evacuated off the southern tip of Manhattan. It's one of the largest evacuations in the history of man. A few years later, in 2005, September 2005, in Texas and Louisiana had just suffered uh, 
from this little thing called Hurricane Katrina. And Hurricane Rita is bearing down in the Gulf of Mexico. Hurricane Rita evacuation uh, alerts go up. Three million people heed the warning, having seen what happened in New Orleans, and they evacuate. On the way, they all start heading north and they head west. We lived in San Antonio, directly west of Houston. And we just had, like, I-10 is, in places in Houston, it's a 16-lane highway. And it was choked and stopped. And the three-and-a-half-hour drive from Houston to San Antonio took people 14, 15, 16 hours. People died on the way while evacuating. Nevertheless, three million people heeded this preemptive call, this preemptive rescue, this evacuation. What they did, the reason they did this is they remembered Katrina. They remembered the scenes a few weeks earlier of people who didn't heed the evacuation call or who socioeconomically couldn't do it or for whatever reason couldn't get out of the city. And then the scenes that followed as the levees broke, and and you can remember the scenes if you're old enough to people that had clawed through their roofs and were on top of their roof signaling to the helicopters as they went by. Surrounded by water, but nothing to drink, nothing to eat. And if you've been in the swamp in Louisiana in August, it's not pleasant. People were dying because they hadn't evacuated. People were dying because they couldn't be rescued. And the Coast Guard and and these groups were going by and getting as many as they could, plucking them off roofs. And when Rita was coming, people remembered this. They said, I don't want to be stuck like them, so we'll get out. When you think about Hurricane Katrina, you recognize that most of the people who perished were those who chose to ride it out. Who on one level or another said, you know what, because of my own wit or my own planning, I'll make it. Every time a major hurricane comes through, you'll see people interviewed on the news. They said, oh, we survived, and they'll name the ones they survived. And everybody says that until the one you don't survive. Because rising waters don't care how smart or how tough or how prepared you are. On my own merit, I'll make it. Which sounds a whole lot like what we do when we slip into our religiosity. I'll just live a moral life. I'll just be better than I was yesterday. I'll just try harder. The rising waters of sin in our lives don't care how religious or how moral we are. Those incredible scenes of people stuck on the roof needing rescue, help scrawled out on the, on the roof, holes dug, people dying. That's us. That's the picture of us in our modern world. That's the picture of religious people trying to do religious things to get religious rewards from a God who isn't interested in religion. Scenes every day of people worn out and desperate for rescue from effort of trying to save themselves. And so this is love. God initiated a preemptive rescue. Long before we knew we'd be waving a flag on the roof of our own righteousness, begging for something to save us from the sins that rise around us. God knew. And God so loved us that he sent Christ. He saw the need before we'd breathed our first breath. And we get to see that a works-based religion 
that a ritualistic, try harder, be better, do moral things religion can't survive John chapter 3. If you're reading the Bible and you get to John 3 and you really think I can be good enough and I can do this and I can work hard enough, you get to John 3 and works can't survive John 3. Jesus didn't come to supplement religion but supplant it. We can spend all day lifting up our good works or moral positions as the place of our trust and our salvation. But it isn't until we put our trust in the Son of Man being lifted up on the cross that we find saving faith. In believing in Jesus, in believing in the standard, we are born again. A new birth, not of flesh, but of a God who loved us enough to die in our place and offer fullness of life in eternity like we could never have imagined before we ever breathed to imagine it in the first place. This is love. And this is what we will spend our next month on investigating deeper and deeper into the never-ending, never-failing, never-abandoning, perfect love of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your love is stunning. Your willingness not to create new rules for us, not to create a new system or a new religion, but Father, to set aside your place as ruler and come down and be among us to live sinlessly and to die in our place. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. God, your love is humbling as we recognize our place as a people that try every single day in every little way to ride it out by our own wits and our own planning, by our own morality. Father, we're attempting to somehow stay above the tide of sin. And every day you offer us fresh forgiveness and grace and mercy. Father, your love that was so deep before we were even born, help us to appreciate your depth and your goodness. Help us to appreciate how profound it is that we can look at each other and know that we are safe and secure, that we know that we are your sons and daughters, not because of anything we've done. Father, because you said so. God, thank you for calling us your children pray that we would be radiant displays of that love as we go about this life. That we would throw off the chains of religion and we would live out your love for all to see. Father, thank you for finding us in this place and for giving us a community to hold us up, to challenge us to better, to cheer us on. Father, I pray for our church, our congregation, our city. God, that this wouldn't be an intellectual exercise in what love is, but Father, this would be a re-energizing of what love can do. That you would take each of our hearts and you would give us a picture of what love looks like in our world, in our neighborhood, in our office place, in our circle of influence. God, would you find us to be alive again? Would you find us to be your children and your ambassadors, carrying you as the standard? 
so that many might see you and believe as a result. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name.